Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Indian poet and author Avijit Das has said that the global refugee crisis is as devastating as a volcano, and it's creating havoc in the lives of millions of people worldwide. Indeed, it is a crisis of epic proportions. Current statistics from the United Nations estimate that there are 84 million displaced persons around the globe, and close to 27 million of them are classified as refugees. Over half of these are children, which is heartbreaking. Refugees that have been displaced from their homes by war, famine, drought, and other national disasters. This uh, infographic, I know it's hard to see, but it shows the refugee crisis over the last 70 years and which countries of origin the majority of refugees have left. Safety, food, water, and shelter are things that we take for granted, but they are priceless treasures in the world of a refugee. Welcome to a brand new sermon series. It's going to be for six weeks. It's entitled Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And it's a series that's birthed out of British author Dr. Krish Kandaya's powerful book, God is Stranger, What Happens When God Turns Up. In the introduction to his book, Dr. Kandaya mentions how it was visiting a refugee family in Lebanon that completely changed the way that he read his Bible. Their temporary home was little more than a few wooden posts with plastic sheeting stapled onto them and then a threadbare strip of carpet on a cement floor. He visited this family who was originally from Aleppo in Syria. And what few belongings he could see around the home was all that they could carry with them when they were forced to flee their residence. A bomb had exploded in a bakery next to where they were living and uh, they were worse than poor, he said. Mostly because they were deep in debt, they'd been forced to borrow money from loan sharks to pay for a life-saving operation for their young son. The mother was very much pregnant, and uh, Chris couldn't imagine how this family was going to survive the upcoming winter. The situation made Dr. Kandaya really search long and hard for, for Bible passages that he could leave with them, words of encouragement and hope, and yet, as he flipped through his Bible, all of the passages that he had highlighted, they didn't quite seem to meet with the gravity of the situation that this family was facing. And so that started him on a journey that led him to this book, a journey challenging him to read the passages of Scripture that he would normally just skip over. He writes, as I read those passages, it it turned out that I had indeed been missing something, that it was precisely in these places that God turned up, although often unannounced, uninvited, and unrecognized. Suddenly, I came across countless passages that talked about God being unpredictable, unfathomable, uncontrollable, uncontainable, though the more perplexing stranger stories and more difficult incidents related in the Bible, I discovered a God who cannot be fully pinned down, explained, or predicted. And he finished his introduction with this challenge. He wrote, as we take a look through the Bible, deliberately pausing at some of the places in Scripture where God chooses to turn up unrecognized, 
we may well need to face our fears. We may need to reboot our idea of who God is and reconnect with God's magnificence. We may find that we can replace a simplistic, domesticated, anemic, fridge magnet understanding of God with a more fierce, awe-inspiring, and majestic God that is true to the Bible and big enough for the whole of our lives. (laughs) When I read that, I was hooked. So I invite you personally to come along with me and with Pastor John over the next six weeks as we take a stranger look at the Bible and find God in some uh, very unexpected places. The story of Adam and Eve is one of the first stories of the Bible. It's a story that we've heard countless times before, but as we take a closer look, we might find it to be, well, a little bit stranger than we expected. Dr. Kandaya begins each chapter with a terse summary of what it'll be about, and for this chapter, the first of his book, he writes this. Chapter one, in which a naked man hides from a forbidding stranger who throws him out of his home, and we ask why friendship with God seems to be so impossible. Now, if that doesn't start to make you rethink what you know about this story, uh, I don't know what does. He frames this chapter, chapter one, beginning with this idea of God as our friend. He writes, I wonder why the God who is supposed to be our friend often feels quite the opposite, an enemy or or at least a stranger. Who is this God who has the power of creation yet seems to be either powerless or uncaring when disaster strikes? Who is this God who lets human beings wreak such destruction against each other? Who is this God whose friendship seems so uncertain? It's a question that almost feels unfaithful to even ask out loud, doesn't it? And yet, how many of us at one time or another have thought these same things or something along the same line? Dr. Kandaya says that God can be both a friend and a stranger to us at the same time. And he uses the story of Adam and Eve to unpack this uh, challenging relationship. Now, there are two main creation stories in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, the first creation story, is an orderly account of how God created everything. God just speaks it, and it comes to be from light all the way to human beings. The second creation story, however, uh, from Genesis chapters 2 and 3, begins in the Garden of Eden and how God created the first human, Adam, uh, much earlier in the creation process than the first creation story from Genesis chapter 1 states. According to the storyteller's companion to the Bible, the name Adam comes from the Hebrew word Adam, which means human being. In fact, the Hebrew word is actually not male, specifically in chapter 2. One scholar said you could call him an earth creature, Uh, to avoid the gender distinction, or maybe just dusty, since God created humankind out of the clay of the earth. Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says, The Lord God took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded Adam, You may freely eat out of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So despite all the wonderful animals that are present in the Garden of Eden, God realizes "Eh, it's not so good for uh, humans to be alone. And so God creates a helper for Adam, and that becomes woman. 
Now, what's interesting is that the most common reference to the word helper that's used in the, first, in the second chapter of Genesis, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, that word helper, 75% of the time that it's used, it's in reference to God. Like the literal translation of verse 18 has God saying, I will make someone like in relationship to him. So all is well in Eden as we come to the end of chapter 2 and begin chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than uh, any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Numerous biblical scholars like Gerhard von Rod and Walter Brueggemann, both of whom I read quite a bit and respect greatly, caution us not to read more into the story than is not actually present. I mean, the only thing we know about the serpent is that it, it is more crafty than every other animal. Nothing in the story says that it is the devil in disguise or the embodiment of evil. There's nothing in the story that indicates this, yet snakes have been given a bad name everywhere because of chapter 3. No, the serpent is simply one of the players in this drama that is about to unfold in paradise. What follows is a dialogue between uh, the serpent, who's evidently quite eloquent, and the woman. This viper asks the woman if it's true that God made all these wonderful trees here in the garden and you're not allowed to eat from any of them. No, 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 she says, that's not true. God says we can eat whatever we want, except, she adds, from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. We can't even touch it or we'll die. (laughs) Poppycock, says the snake, which I think is the literal translation from the Hebrew. Maybe not, maybe not. Uh, But the snake says, you will not die. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God and you'll know good from evil. Now, on a side note, it's interesting that during this entire conversation between the woman and the snake, at no point do they ever actually talk to God directly, to ask God what, uh, what it was. Could you clarify what you said about this? No, they simply talk about God, which is theology, right? Talking about God. But As uh, wonderful as theology can be, it definitely has its limits, and there are times when it's important to talk to God directly. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now, for starters, we don't know what type of fruit it was on this tree of knowledge and good of evil. It probably was not an apple, though. Sorry, Granny Smith. Um, In the ancient Near East, common fruit would have been pomegranates, um, apricots, olives, and lemons. But did you notice the internal debate uh, that the woman had before eating? Like, she really wrestled with this. She was weighing the conversation between the snake and trying to sort out the pros and the cons. Well mostly the pros, I guess, and then she eats. The man, on the other hand, who according to the Hebrew language seems to indicate that he was there for the entire conversation, he didn't just wander up after she started eating, Uh, he simply takes it and eats it without giving it a thought at all, like, okay, I'll eat it. This Bible story is brought to you by Snickers, because when you're hungry, you're just not yourself, right? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So whether you call it betrayal or rebellion, when the man and the woman ate what God has specifically told them not to eat, something changed. 
They suddenly feel shame. Something that wasn't hardwired into them in the beginning of creation. Now, notice that it's not a spiritual problem. They're not racked with guilt over what uh, God had told them to do that they disobeyed. No, no, no. They feel bodily shame, and they cover up their nakedness. Michael E. Williams in the Storyteller's Companion to the Bible has an interesting point about fig leaves. He says, have you ever felt a fig leaf? Like, at certain points in their life cycle, uh, you, it, it feels more like medium-grade sandpaper. And wearing a fig leaf while stark naked is a long way from the comfort of cotton. He says, I can imagine that whenever this story was told in homes and around campfires, the scene would have brought forth great peals of laughter from the early listeners. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So evidently God would uh, take an evening walk most uh, in the Garden of Eden most evenings. And the man and woman would have face-to-face interactions and encounters with the Lord. What a wonderfully intimate relationship there was at the very beginning. But not on this day. Oh, God is there walking through the garden, as was his custom, but the bodily shame of Adam and Eve uh, leads them to play a rousing game of hide-and-seek from God, right? Just a word to the wise, don't ever play hide-and-seek with God, because God always wins. God always knows where we are and what we're up to, even when we think we're hiding it from him. Right? And despite the truth, we still do this even today, don't we? We hide from God in our routines, even in our religiosity and our rituals. Right? In our busyness, we often act as though we're trying to hide from God as to not give God our full attention and relationship. But God always knows exactly where we are. But don't feel bad. We're not alone in that, right? The Bible is full of stories of people trying to play hide-and-seek with God. You can look at Moses or Jonah, Elijah. Those are great uh, men of faith that just uh, connect with this same struggle that all of us as humans seem to have. So the first man and the first woman rush off into the bushes, no doubt scratching themselves along the way with their fall fig leaf clothing line that they've fashioned for themselves. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God asked two main questions here. First, where are you? God asked Adam. And he could have just said, "Uh, I'm over here. But no, he chooses a different response. He starts explaining, well, And then God asks uh, us that same question all the time. Where where are you, my child? And we fill our days up with anything and everything to avoid spending time with God. But God's heart longs to have that connection with us. Second, after asking uh, who told them they were naked, God asks, have you eaten the forbidden fruit? And it's a simple question. It, it really just requires a yes or no answer. But again, Adam opts for a longer explanation. Now, on a side note, I've been a pastor for almost 30 years now. And many, many people over the course of my time in various churches have come to the church looking for financial help. And I've discovered that 
in general, the longer their backstory is in talking to me about why they need the money, the chances are they're not being completely honest, or at least trying to, to uh, obscure certain facts. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule, but there's something about human nature, right, that makes us want to over-explain when we know we're guilty. What follows is the first ever blame game, right, otherwise known as passing the buck. God asks the man if he's eaten the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. The man says, well, it was the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit from the tree, and, and I just ate it. Uh, so Adam is already now throwing uh, God and his wife under the proverbial bus, even before buses were created. God asks the woman, what is it that you've done? And she, of course, blames the snake, uh, claiming that she was tricked. And then there's no one left for the snake to blame, so God starts handing down divine punishments. He tells the snake he's going to have to give up his legs. Evidently, the serpent could boogie with the best of them. Uh, now he has to crawl on the ground, be hated by pretty much every human ever that's going to come on the face of this earth. The woman's told that she will now have to uh, have the joy of pain in childbirth. And the man finds out he's given his, been given his pink slip as the gardener of Eden and now has to work as a landscaper outside of paradise. But it's going to be hard work, says God. And there's even an indication that death comes into the picture. Like, maybe they would have lived forever in Eden, but now they're told that they will eventually go back to the dust from which they were created. Verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. The Hebrew word for living is high, and uh, the Hebrew word for Eve is high-yah. Adam, fresh off naming all the animals in chapter 2, now puts the finishing touch on the naming activity by naming his wife Eve. And they're about to be forced out of the garden, so God decides to graciously throw in a parting gift, new clothes. God's like, seriously, you have got to take those ridiculous fig leaves off and have something a little bit more practical. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also uh, from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. And the man and the woman become the world's first refugees, forced from their home by God because of their disobedience. Dr. Kandaya wonders why God couldn't have turned up just a few minutes earlier and in a different mood, right? Why didn't he intervene before the snake slithered onto the scene? Or at least while Eve was trying to weigh the pros and cons and decide if she should eat the fruit or not. No, no, no. God chose to turn up after all of that, right? After the act of rebellion, after the onset of the terrible guilt that forced the couple into hiding. Dr. Kandaya mentions that there are four different ways that humanity gets displaced as the result of this story from Genesis chapter 3. First, of course, their disobedience led to being physically displaced from their homes, right, from the Garden of Eden. As, as soon as they ate the fruit, they felt out of place. 
in the garden. They no longer were able to enjoy the home that God had created specifically for them. And they knew this even before God cursed them and cast them out. Chris puts it this way. He writes, Imagine my daughter, having been clearly told not to jump off of the roof of our shed, does so anyway and breaks her leg. After the proper proper medical attention has been given to her, I sit her down for a talk. I explained to her that because she ignored my instructions, her leg is broken and she is not able to swim, compete in sports, play on the trampoline, or walk the dog for at least six weeks, possibly longer. Now, my pronouncement, he says, is not a punishment, but rather a clarification of the consequences of her bad decision. It's not because I am vindictive, he writes, and I explain this to her, but because I want her to accept the limitations caused by her disobedience. Second, there was a breach or displacement that occurred in the relationship between the man and the woman in their uh, relationship together, right? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake, and from that moment, their relationship starts to disintegrate. Anytime we try to build ourselves up by tearing other people down, problems start. Whether it's gender bias, ethnic wars, all sort of distrust and misinformation can be traced back here. So this is a good time uh, to stop and do a little introspection and ask if any of our relationships suffer from this, from this uh, time of trying to build ourselves up by tearing others down. And we need to ask forgiveness and work to strengthen our most valuable relationships, whether it's your marriage, your relationship with your children, family members, or good friends. Third, humankind experienced a dislocation within themselves, right? Personal shame and fear came crashing down after the bite of fruit. Their their sense of self-worth is immediately uh, perverted. Their self-image takes a big hit, and we begin to see the seeds of emotional and psychological breakdown. They were made in God's image, but suddenly they saw themselves as less than, and so they tried to hide. And we continue to fall into this trap even today. Anytime we see ourselves as less than, less than who God created us, less than being made in the image of God despite our differences, when we, when we get frustrated that we're not tall enough or thin enough or smart enough or creative enough or put in whatever the tape that you run in your head goes, we are not being who God called us to be. And finally, Adam and Eve uh, saw significant disruption, displacement in their connection with God, right? When they ignored God's command, their relationship with God changed immediately. Their attitude towards God was altered. They couldn't face God, let alone enjoy the privilege of a face-to-face encounter with him when he was walking in the garden with them. They were rebels, hiding from the presence of God, yet knowing that their lives would not make sense without him. And so by choosing to disobey and hide from him, Adam and Eve suddenly made God more of a stranger than a friend. And you might even say then by casting them out of the garden, God puts distance between himself and humanity. And so God was also making himself to be more of a stranger to them. Dr. Kandaya writes, Christian or not, the consequences of human rebellion in Eden underlie the ongoing difficulties we experience in 
making friends, holding our families together, coping with work pressures, feeling like we don't belong, struggling with addictions and phobias, and suffering in all its various and painful forms. And our relationship with God will always be a tension between knowing his presence and yet feeling his distance. Wow. We began this sermon at a refugee camp in Lebanon with Dr. Kandaya wondering what possible word of encouragement the Bible could give to people who have been displaced from their homes like that Syrian family that welcomed him. The reality is the Bible is full of refugees, of people displaced from the homes they knew, people like Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Lot, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, and all the tribes of Israel, Moses, Naomi and Ruth, David, Elijah, Esther, Mordecai, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and of course, Jesus, who, was, who fled as a refugee to Egypt as a young child, with him, of course, his mother Mary and father Joseph. And then we might add Peter and Philip, Aquila and Priscilla, and the majority of the early church that that spread around the Roman Empire. Whether displaced by natural disaster, exploitation, human trafficking, war, famine, persecution, all these refugees made the Bible a most relevant book for our world today, with its 84 million physically displaced people worldwide. The reality is that all of us, in one way or another, have become refugees, wandering exiles, strangers in a strange land. It all started with Adam and Eve, and it's continued over the course of human history. Many of us have been displaced geographically, way too many of us, but others of us have experienced displacement in our our relationships. Some of us from our emotional and mental well-being, especially during the last 22 months of this global pandemic. Some of us from our spiritual health. We're no longer who God created us to be, sons and daughters of God who feel like they are made in God's image. But far from this story in Genesis being purely a depressing tale of crime and punishment, this is just the start of the Bible. It may seem like God has become a stranger from the onset, but we still have thousands of pages left before this story is brought to a completion. And so, with our gracious gift of animal skin clothing, we leave the Garden of Eden and fig leaves uh, behind. And we look towards our next encounter with God as a stranger. The iconic father of all, Abraham, is our next stop. Until then, may our hearts be open to a new understanding of this God who does at times appear to be a stranger to us. It's not the end of the story. Amen.